Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Scott. I am here with the always impressive, amazing, and bestie, Dr. Shiloh. How are you, Dr. Shiloh? I'm well. How are you, Dr. Scott? I'm doing okay. I'm in the beginning stages of trying to move. It is, it's a chore. We're trying to avoid getting stressed out by it, but yeah, I don't know if but that's exciting. Possible. Exciting. Yeah. New place. Not so far. You picked out paint colors that look gorgeous. Yeah. That's really fun. great paint colors. Yeah. And there's a sweet dog that lives upstairs in the apartment from us that says hi to me every time I drive over. So he's up in the window. Are you taking your crows and your squirrels with you? No, I found a new crow crew over there. A new murder of crows? Yeah, and they're all adolescents. And they remember me now because the first day I went over, I threw a bunch of peanuts out. You know what I'll do for when we post this episode? I'm going to post the video because it was about 24 crows. It was really cool. Yes, please. I have to turn them into an army. There you go. Anyway, sorry, nobody wants to hear about this. (laughs) You guys out there, you're so great. Hey, Czech Republic, thank you for listening to us. (laughs) Like we, our numbers went up in the Czech Republic really substantially. So. there's, there's a handful of people listening to us. I wish I could even make my way through Babblefish to say something appropriate and check, but I was not able to do that. So I would love to go back to Prague. Let's yeah, make that happen. That'd be really cool. Okay. So everybody needs to save the date for May 20th, May 20th, 2023 for a live podcast event that we're in the very early stages of planning, although we have been trying to make this happen for a very, very long time. We're finally getting to the place where we are, you know, nailing down a date, nailing down a topic. And the greatest thing is that it's going to take place here in LA in the area in a really special area where Mm -hmm. I I think it's just the coolest venue for an event altogether. But we'll, we'll talk more about it later. But it's also with some of our dearest podcast friends. More on it later. Please don't miss an episode and follow us on social media for all the upcoming details. Yes. We just want to nail everything down just a little bit before we give you details and you can make your arrangements to come on out for that. Yeah. We've done two live events here. I mean, we we yeah. did one ourselves and then we were part mm-hmm. of another one. And mm-hmm. I think both of them have been really good sort of learning experiences on how to put something like that together. And we have the the venue has an expert because she runs the place. So sure. she's being very helpful. It's very yeah. exciting. This is going to be a very special experience. So yeah, just bear with us. We promise we'll get you the details ASAP because I swear we're going to blink and May is going to be here. So yeah. It will. If you haven't listened to our last episode, that was episode 126 on survivor guilt, sparked from the shocking reveal a month ago that there was a surviving victim of the Idaho college murders who came face to face with the killer. We decided to dive into what someone who survives a traumatic event may experience. And in that episode, we differentiated the phenomenon from PTSD and moral injury. And we also pulled some information about those who specifically survived murder, which was super interesting. And in that, at the end of our episode, we were like, well, you know, here's a couple movies that maybe have survivor guilt in them. And we kind of put it out to our listeners of let us know if you come up with something better. And of course, we got some really great suggestions you guys came through for films that depict survivor's guilt. Some that were brought up were Saving Private Ryan. Of course, I mean, I think there's a lot of military films out there that illustrate this, at least in some way. And then we also had a listener who had us remember the film Fearless from 1993. So this starred Jeff Bridges, Rosie Perez, and Isabella Rossellini. This was a screenplay adapted by the author, Rafael Iglesias, 
from his novel of the same name. And it was actually inspired by his own survival of a car accident. And the listener that sent this in sent in additionally a very beautiful monologue by one of the characters that really like was the epitome of survivor guilt. And then I love that someone suggested The Lion King. Totally had not thought of that. Of course. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So yeah, wonderful, wonderful suggestions. I mean, we have this great relationship with Disney that tells these wonderful stories that, you know, are are offshoots of the, I think, what is it? There are seven basic stories that are archetypal in yeah. human existence and they get told in different ways. But man, Disney always manages to like make sure one of the parents dies. Always. <laughs> you know, Bambi, Dumbo. It's just always. All the like, princesses. Oh, exactly. None of the princesses have moms. Exactly. Well, who does? <laughs> Rapunzel does. Well, they've kind of changed the, I think they changed the trope. They wanted to update it. Where it's like, let's not be as traumatic in this way. We're just going to kidnap her. Her mother, right? (laughs) Like, no, she, he she, kills her adopted mother dies, but she gets to go back to her oh, real parents. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yes. Mother. Yeah. Mother, mother gets Gothel. tossed yeah. out the tower on her ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Disney. So as in previous vintage episodes, we've always framed our narrative within this challenging context of history historical crime drama, and a myriad of conflicting research sources. And you know, this episode is going to be no different, although it presents a fascinating progression of ever-changing investigation clues that end up with not only a wild court setting, but a defense that would absolutely never work today. You're going to see in our show notes pretty much a listing of all the other podcasts and the books that have focused on this subject. I recommend seeing and watching the YouTube documentaries that are, you know, sort of semi-professionally produced. There's people that are very dedicated to telling the stories. They take a little bit of liberties with some of their sources without giving credit, but it's the internet. What are you going to do? So we got a little bit of a trigger warning. We've got murder, including dismemberment for some people that might be triggering. So there you go. On October 16th, 1931, seemingly typical Friday night, Winnie Ruth Judd went to her friend's bungalow for dinner and drinks. And what happened next was a mystery told by the lone survivor. At some point, a gun was pulled and all three women were shot. Winnie Ruth in her left hand, Agnes Ann Leroy and Hedvig Sammy Samuelson, both fatally. Now, clearly an argument between the friends broke out. Over what? It's still unclear. Men, money, other women. But it gets really dramatic. The body of Agnes was folded into a large trunk. Sammy's body was too cumbersome and would not fit into the remaining valise. So her body was then dismembered, placed into multiple suitcases, and covered and wrapped in articles of clothing. Winnie Ruth then loaded up her heavy luggage and boarded a train headed for Los Angeles. And while en route, the trunks began to leak and emit quite a strong smell that was immediately recognized by both train staff and police. But their initial assumptions were only partly correct. While railway staff was well acquainted with the regular smuggling of deer meat over state lines, yes, that was actually a big thing back then, they really weren't prepared for what was revealed inside Winnie Ruth's luggage. Police met Winnie Ruth, now accompanied by her L.A. resident brother at the Los Angeles Central Station and asked her to open the trunks. Claiming that her husband had the keys, she managed to flee. Immediately following, her brother surmised that something was completely out of sorts for his usually well-contained sibling. He gave her as much money as he could afford, wished her good luck, kid, and watched her fade into the crowd of downtown Los Angeles. While back at the railway station, police and train staff forced open the trunks and unveiled a horrific scene. Well, 
let's let's back up and learn who Winnie Ruth Judd was. So Winnie Ruth McKinnell, who went by Ruth, was born in 1905 in either Darlington or Oxford, Indiana, depending on where you get your information. And she was the daughter of a stern Methodist minister and his wife. And at a young age, some report between 17 and 19 years old, she married Dr. William C. Judd, a man 22 years her senior. He was a 40-year-old World War I veteran and had a mean addiction to morphine, stemming likely from his injuries from the war. And there was not a lot of information about what kind of doctor he was, but clearly he was an out-of-work one because the couple moved frequently looking for steady employment. Their travels took them all over the U.S. and Mexico before finally settling in the Los Angeles area. And as Dr. Judd struggled with his substance abuse disorder, which most assuredly was one of the reasons he couldn't stay in employment situations for very long, Winnie Ruth was diagnosed with tuberculosis. So in 1930, she left Los Angeles and her husband for the dry air of Phoenix. And when I read this, I thought, did they think that dry air would fix everything back then? Because if you remember, Dr. Scott and our listeners probably remember, I'm pretty sure Elizabeth Short came out to LA for similar reasons, right? I believe so. What we do know is that Elizabeth Short had been at a summer camp for kids with tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. But for many the bacteria can linger for years in the body without fully emerging. So yeah, there's this whole thing that we'll talk about a little bit just to give you a setting for understanding that this was an era before an onslaught of a broad range of medications for even just basic infections. Right. And believe me, tuberculosis is not a basic infection. And essentially, this bacterium lodges in the lungs and it creates these pustules that cause bloody coughs, hacking, lung pain. Victims can waste away or are consumed from the inside. So therefore, tuberculosis was dubbed consumption. And in Victorian times, consumption became kind of glorified in romance novels and stories leading to a wave of young women starving themselves. Oh, so that makes me think of Moulin Rouge. Yes, there's this romantic character who is fated to die a young death, but is still pale and has glistening eyes and all these weird things. But the 1909 book Tuberculosis, a treatise of American authors, confirmed a lot of these notions. And there's a quote here I want to share with you. A number of patients have and have had for previous years to their sickness, a delicate and transparent skin, as well as fine silky hair. Sparkling or dilated eyes, rosy cheeks, and red lips were also common in tuberculosis patients. Characteristics now known to be caused by a frequent low-grade fever. We also begin to see elements in fashion that either highlight symptoms of the disease or physically emulate the disease. So I had no idea. I was going down a rabbit hole there was this huge amount of research on how tuberculosis actually had a huge influence on fashion. So my thought here is before there was heroin chic, there was TB chic. Uh, I, I actually, <laughs> all snarkiness aside, I think that that's, that's the point they're trying to make as far as this is over a hundred years ago. And I think that's yeah. what they're saying. Oh my gosh. I would love to see some examples or what the fashion choices were. I mean, I don't know how, how you're sort of emulating or highlighting this. Interesting. Some strains of TB died very quickly in just a matter of days, and this was called galloping consumption, while other patients survived for years, not experiencing any symptoms, and still others lived long but debilitated lives. So Dan and I have this ongoing joke when we're watching movies that anytime a person coughs, I immediately say, okay, she's dead. <laughs> like a, you're watching a period piece and someone Anything. Coughs. Any, like, yeah, yeah, anytime. I mean, even if it's a modern piece and somebody coughs, like, oh, he's dead. <laughs> 
But we were watching Mildred Pierce and there's this scene where the youngest daughter is all happy and funny and sweet and she's skipping through the house and she lets out this little (laughs) and this little bird cough and immediately from my Barco lounger, I go, she's dead. She's dead. Pointing, doing that like Leonardo DiCaprio meme where you're like pointing at the TV. (laughs) That's it. She's dead. But I digress. Look, from the mid-1850s, tuberculosis actually grew into the major cause of all adult death in U.S. cities. And it was fueled by crowded and unsanitary living and working conditions that were precipitated by the Industrial Revolution. So that particular outbreak lasted for decades and brought a lot of people seeking help out West. So thankfully, antibiotics have made it a very, very rare condition statistically to the world population, but it is very common in hospital incarceration settings for staff to get exposed to the bacterium due to the poor historical health care of inmates or disadvantaged public populations. So when I worked in the prison, when I worked in the jails, we were tested for tuberculosis all the time. Oh, if yeah. You, if you tested positive, you had to take time off until you were given the all clear. Yeah, I think they even continued to test people who are recently paroled because I remember my clinic getting one client that tested positive and like, oh man, I just remember everybody freaking out. Yeah. So So, yeah. yeah. TB does remain a significant public health problem in recent research. Looking at 2015, there were an estimated of 10.4 million tuberculosis cases and then 1.8 million fatalities from the disease. And of those 1.8 million fatalities, that included a quarter of a million people who had been diagnosed with HIV as well. So clearly it would have impacted their immune system quite horrifically. The cool thing, if we can have a say, say there's a cool thing and kind of an, another little historical twist on this, over by the LAPD Academy in Elysian Park, there is the Barlow Respiratory Hospital. And that was constructed over there in Chavez Ravine at the turn of the century. And it was a sanitarium, which is what they called it back then, and then sort of merged into a tuberculosis hospital. And this was all in the 30s. And for anyone in the LA area who's ever driven through there, or if you want to, you can still drive by and see there's the hospital on one side, and then there's all these little bungalows on the other side of the road that were for patients. And they had to spread them out to prevent increased infection. But it's a really kind of neat historical little place. It has a library in it. It still is a utilized hospital today, but just in a really neat little area of historical LA. So back to Winnie Ruth. I thought it was notable, just like you said, there were so many photographs used of her in these documentaries that we reviewed. And at first glance, you don't think too much about her appearance, right? She has kind of this plain yet angular face, the chin length hair, that soft wave Bob. She looks like a brunette in pictures, but everything that describes her refers to her as a blonde, maybe dirty blonde. But, you know, she has the thin eyebrows of the day and these really big dark brown eyes with this slightly pouty mouth and not much makeup. You know, she's not totally glam. There's some where she had others and where she was wearing furs, but generally not a a ton of makeup. But I don't know. I just found something really sort of intoxicating and interesting about her. Like there's something going on behind her eyes and it's intense, but it's not scary or evil or gives like killer vibes, I guess. I don't know. It's really hard to sort of describe, but the reports say she was only five feet tall, but I I think she's very pretty. And it's just interesting to kind of look at these still pictures of individuals from back then and think about what they're accused of or what they have done. And I don't know, I just 
wanted to talk about the observation a little bit of, of looking at these pictures of a very beautiful woman and then thinking about what she has done in this case. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I had the same experience. Some of the pictures you look at it and go, there's nothing remarkable about this woman at all. But then she's described as attractive and you, you look at other pictures and you see certain angles. But I agree with you. First of all, I love that you noticed all that. I thought overall she has this haunted quality. Like mm. she's not doing, she's not giving the thousand yard stare that you would no. see in someone with like chronic or, you know, pretty moderate to severe mental illness. She's not mugging for the camera as some right. of our other vintage case killers have done. But yeah, there's something, there's a quality to her that's very, that's just fascinating. You know, mm -hmm. she, you wonder where the truth is in all this narrative. And I know we've barely started, but there's just so much conflicting information that comes up. But let's get back to the narrative. There's a report that Winnie Ruth initially got a job as a governess with a wealthy family when she moved to Phoenix. But it also seems like somehow she got diverted from that and she was ending up working as a secretary at the local clinic. And there's a little bit of Arizona history here. The Gruno Clinic was built in 1931 and archivist reports showed the clinic opened with 13 specialists, a laboratory, a research center, a radiology department, and a medical library. One of the first in the state. I mean, that's really impressive, especially for that time in American history as far west as it was to have right. that big of, and, and advanced of something being built in that area. It was created in the memory of Lois Anita Gruno, a seven-year-old girl who died in Chicago after a possible misdiagnosis. Her father, William Gruno, a wealthy businessman from the Midwest, endowed $1 million to have the clinic created in Phoenix. He purposely had it constructed in a more working-class area to make sure that there was top-notch medical services that were more available to the working class community. What a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. So it was at the Grunau Clinic that Ruth met and befriended x-ray technician Agnes or Anne Leroy and her roommate Hedvig Sammy Samuelson, who was a teacher. The young women found themselves to have a lot in common through their work, as well as being the same age range. Ruth spent many nights socializing at their bungalow, playing cards, and eventually entertaining local businessmen. And put a pin in that, we will come back around. Sammy also had a medical diagnosis of tuberculosis, which emerged after both she and Anne had resided in Alaska previously. Anne was the general treatment of the day that we discussed earlier, the two of them considered moving to the driest American climate they could find and afford. And that choice was definitely Phoenix, Arizona, which was up and coming, but still quite affordable at the time. And I like to think that they all bonded over the fact that they were all working women. They were at least earning enough money to live on their own. And this was in a time when most women didn't have that luxury or weren't doing that. And while the actual truth of the entertaining and socializing with a character we're going to introduce you to in a bit, Happy Jack and his buddies may not ever be known, it would likely have been to boost their income with things like meals and drinks and entertainment and perhaps some other types of financial support to supplement their lifestyle. So what is confirmed in the records is that initially Ruth moved into Sammy and Anne's Second Street bungalow for a short time, but differences eventually emerged between the young women, causing Ruth to move out on her own to an apartment. One of the resources that we reviewed alleges that Ruth had some annoying housekeeping habits, basically did not clean up after herself or regularly contribute to upkeep. And this really irked Anne and Sammy, who were known to be somewhat fastidious. 
yeah, I guess this was at least a little riff that the ladies had between them. Yeah, that can always happen. I think it's it's easier sometimes. There may even have been studies on this that it's easier when there are only two roommates, two roommates. Mm. But the more that you introduce additional people into a living situation that aren't related is that yeah. you drive up the potential for for internal conflict. So Sure. Well, yeah. and clearly Anne and Sammy had lived together for some time. I mean, they right. lived in a different state and had their habits down. And then Ruth comes in and she's just, I don't know, leaving dirty dishes and... It sounds like that's what it was. It sounds like it might have been that. But again, you know, we we have only personal recounts at this point as to, to what actually happened. Although yeah. there is a very interesting book that I'm planning on reading that we'll talk about at the end. One of the relatives of the victims, her great niece, wrote a book mm. about this, which I think is a great idea. You know, since you sent me down that rabbit hole on tuberculosis, I, <laughs> you know, I, I go too far afield tangentially. But one of the things that we talk about that you hear so much is people people moving west for tuberculosis right. to get the dry air. And the published literature suggests that this is not actually a specific favorable or unfavorable climate condition for TB, but that transmission is definitely enhanced because of poor ventilation or overcrowding. Huh. So that goes back to the jail and the incarceration and the hospital yeah, totally. settings where it can be a problem. There is a definite association between humidity and TB. TB is immediate and strong even in low humidity, but the risk decreases with the reduction in humidity. So definitely it's not good when you're in a humid environment and you're coughing out particles that then attach to the particles around, they get spread around. Right. But interestingly, it can be just as bad if you're in a, an optimum dry environment, but there's a lot of airflow. So mm. too many people with airflow, you're, it's, people are going to get infected, which is so weird to be talking about this now as we're kind of coming out of covid I know. I was you know, having but the it's same like, thoughts. This was like people talk about the Spanish flu, but tuberculosis has been another airborne infection, bacterial rather than viral, which yeah. caused a lot of deaths and, and is related to you know those ventilation issues. Well, and I'm thinking of if these three women are living together, two of them are diagnosed with tuberculosis. And so Anne, for whatever reason, either was never symptomatic or never tested positive, just skated around it living with Sammy for so long and then Ruth being introduced to the mix. So, so you wonder, I mean, that's another thing where I, I start wondering, like, is this something that was just so accepted? It's like, yeah. oh, well, I don't have the galloping consumption. Mm -hmm. You know, I have like I've I, it's in my body, but I don't have any symptoms and I'm kind of OK. But one of them did have symptoms. You know, one of them yeah. was very weak most of the time. And that was was Ruth. Like she yeah. had chronic long term. That became part of the defense. But what we know does work, especially in the times before antibiotics, was rest therapy. And that sounds great. I'll take a prescription for that. Let's, can we have it now? <laughs> can I have three weeks of rest therapy, please? And this is because of the position of the patient when they're laying down. There's the benefit of reduced stress on the immune system and hopefully at least cleaner air in the chosen environment of mountains or desert, you know, pre-smog, especially when we're talking about Southern California. Right. But mainly it was because of that lying down in a reclined position that actually deprived the TB infection of the oxygen that it needed to stay alive in the system. So deprive it of oxygen and it doesn't reproduce as quickly or 
efficiently. So this makes me think awful. of that. This makes it, it does sound awful, but it also it makes me think of the studies they keep trying to recruit people for going to Mars. They're like, hey, we need volunteers that can lay in bed for 30 days on your back. You can't get out. And there's like people just clamoring, please. <laughs> oh my God. Please. That would drive me I don't care about going to Mars, but let me be in bed for 30 days. Just take out. me anywhere. No. <laughs> After about six, I would be absolutely insane. So. Right. No. Hey, so there is another character that gets introduced into this story. Out of all these myths, legends, contradictions in the reporting of this crime, there is one particular name that is either prominent or playing a very close backseat depending on who is telling the story. And that is Happy Jack Halloran. He was a very successful businessman who made his fortune in the local lumber industry. He was also firmly entrenched in a circle of like-minded and similarly accomplished and well-to-do businessmen who shared a peculiar habit. They all tended to have double lives. <gasps> Rich men with double lives? I'm clutching my pearls. Such a shocker. I, do you need a, do you, do you I need need a, a moment. space? Do you need a moment yeah. to process it? I need a fainting couch. Hang on. I know, what a concept that like rich douches would have double lives and women on the side. So Jack and his compatriots had presentable and respectable family lives. They were, you know, pinnacles of society, married, multiple children, and they presented well in public because it was also part of presenting well for the reputation of their businesses. What those outside of the higher income brackets didn't know was that these men who were ostensibly out of town on business, quote unquote, every other weekend were actually partying it up on the other side of the tracks, usually with a crowd of young women on lower or only relatively stable income. And during her time as a governess, Ruth met Jack Halloran. He was then 44 years old, so really much older, almost like her husband was. So let's put a little pin in there for some Freudian issues, (laughs) right? Or some psychodynamic issues or or daddy issues there. But Jack was not only successful in a pillar of society, he was really well-connected, which becomes a very important factor later on in the story. Winnie Ruth became involved with Jack And like I said, he had sported the nickname Happy. And so he was known as Happy Jack, big boisterous guy with a lot of money, but also apparently could be very intimidating. Winnie was still married to her medical doctor husband and was in contact with him. But he was basically tooling around Southern California and Mexico trying to keep jobs. I can't help but think that as backwards as substance abuse issues were treated then, Mm -hmm. that he may have been going from clinic to clinic as a general practitioner in order to access morphine and then getting kicked out. That might have been what was going on. Clearly, he was not able to keep regular employment because even a doctor, while doctors weren't as rich then as they are now, they were certainly had the opportunity to be well-to-do. So it was, it's, it's, it's an odd situation that the two of them are separate like this. But like we said, Happy Jack is married. Winnie is still married. But this opportunity to be with Jack and have this relationship continues to grow. She then moved out of the shared apartment after the sort of dust up with her roommates Mm -hmm. and found her own lodging that was really only a few blocks away. I think it was like hop on the streetcar and get off in just a couple of minutes. It was very, very close. But even though they'd all kind of split up a little bit, they did not stop their parties. Now, the ladies late night vodio do gatherings were continuing i'm sorry what was that what the boat the what okay well so in (laughs) honor of the recent death of cindy williams from laverne and shirley Uh, i'm using the euphemism for sex that was taken from this actual time period so they they borrowed it so you wouldn't say sex you could say vododio you were out last night doing your vododio do vododio do yeah (laughs) 
I have never heard You've that. never heard that? That's, <laughs> that is, that's the difference in our ages. That's hilarious. But going back to a point you made about rich, successful men and their, their side relationships, I, for people out there that are listeners that really like classic movies, this is not necessarily a noir film, but it can feel very noir because it's black and white and in Manhattan in the late fifties. Mm. And it's beautifully, beautifully shot. And it's a drama comedy with Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine called The Apartment about a young executive that basically is moving up through his company by giving other executives keys to his apartments. They can bring their party girls over. Oh, to have their trysts and the family won't know about it. So he meets Shirley MacLaine and like, it's very interesting because it talks about this very subject of being basically a piece of property. You know, you're, you're a kept woman Mm -hmm. and sort of kept on a string by these rich guys. Very, very funny. While there it's, while it is a comedy, it has some real moments of sadness and poignancy that is really about the unfulfilled promises made by men to women in power at that time and probably still happening today as well. In some of the reports about the relationship, And who knows where this information came from, but it says that Happy Jack and Winnie Ruth's relationship was not just drinking and carousing, but that they would sit on the front porch of her little rental cottage for hours and share everything about their lives. So they were supposedly building this significant romantic relationship, even though they were both still married. Mm. Well, that's interesting because it turns out that Sammy and Anne also happened to be acquaintances of Happy Jack. And in fact, the bungalow they rented belonged to him. And it was alleged in several reference sources that all three women had varying degrees of relationships with Happy Jack at some point. This was focused on in the trial and by other writers as it supposedly led to increasing tensions between the women, which then led to violence. And there are many theories about what transpired that night. And according to really one of the most accepted timelines, Ruth had confirmed plans to see Happy Jack that night. So she initially declined to head over to her previous digs. But when Happy Jack didn't show up, Ruth went to the bungalow after all. And if that's true, you can imagine what kind of mood she might be in, whether pissed or suspicious or who knows. But as we have often said on these vintage episodes, there's no way to have a clear-cut story and objectively confirm a story of events as they unfolded. And with, as most of these dramatic cases, Ruth's story changed over time with multiple conflicting and complicated confessions and retellings, letters, interviews. And this is really an interesting point. This absolutely would not happen today or rarely happens today as defense usually has a much stronger impact and control of what the defendant is saying. Does it seem to you that maybe today defendants say even less, like we we want our clients to say as little as possible in that kind of setting? Oh, I think it's night and day. I mean, with just with the handful of vintage cases that you and I have covered, right? I mean, there's like 17 interviews by police and there's, you know, multiple statements to the press, stuff that you would never see today that attorneys would shut down immediately. I, the thing that sticks out for me is you you don't ever really hear about people accused of murder going on the stand. Oh no, no. Their attorneys are like, no, you're not, you're not going to be cross-examined at all. We're not going to allow that. So they're not even going to take the chance on that. But when we look at these vintage cases, especially the women's cases that we've covered, they're always going on the stand. Always. 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, not just like the, you know, press conferences or talking to the media, which we know back then, and especially in Los Angeles. And I know we're, we're bouncing back and forth between Phoenix and LA in this one, but I'm sure it was in most metropolitan areas where the, the reporters and the media were so embedded with the police and almost being there, like literally in the same room or the same space yeah. when interrogations are happening, if not being the first on the scene before police even get there. So, yeah. Interesting. Well, there's another timeline possibility that implies that all three ladies were socializing at the bungalow when an argument emerged from discussions about where Happy Jack's true affections were focused. So we're not talking about them all getting together that night. We're talking about an engagement or an interaction afterwards. Mm. So, uh, you know, I can't say anything definitive about this. Clearly, it seems a bit tropey to think that these three rather independent and successful women would be so focused on their previously shared relations with this one guy. Yeah. Maybe maybe I'm not seeing this through, but it just is interesting to me that, you know, I, it's just hard to tell. I just, yeah. it doesn't seem like, I mean, just the idea that we would want to frame like all these women fighting over this married guy, it just doesn't right. seem legit. But Blech. anyway, if we follow the narrative of this particular timeline, allegedly Sammy pulled out a 25 caliber handgun with the first shot going into Ruth's left hand. This was followed by Anne grabbing a nearby ironing board and beating Ruth with it. And so this narrative, this is Ruth's narrative, clearly, because she's the only survivor here. And there's Bingo. a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of problems with this particular story that Ruth could have said something so inflammatory that she's attacked by both women. But even more significantly that Sammy, remember, was diagnosed with a pretty chronic case of tuberculosis. This was actually the reason that she was in the Southwest to try and recuperate, you know, that she's going to be the one that initiates this big violent act. And this particular timeline was at the same time that Sammy was described as being bedridden. So I think we have to ask ourselves, is it really possible that someone in a very chronically impaired state could have put up a fight over a gun? Or, I mean, I would just think, I'm not going to take out a gun and shoot someone because what if the fight is on and now I'm bedridden? <laughs> like, that's a pretty, I don't know, impulsive yeah, thing to no, do. It, could it's happen. weird. And then, like, they're still entertaining guys. So here's Sammy over here every once in a while, like, kind of looking pale and, you know, like she's, she's about like, to die. She's like, but my cheeks like, are rosy. <laughs> uh, my cheeks are rosy. Can I have another some of that bathtub gin? That would be I'm, great. I'm glistening. I'm glistening. Anyway, going back to one of our sources, it's alleged that Ruth then threatened to out Sammy and Anne's intimate relationship, saying that she was going to tell everybody at the clinic that they were in a lesbian relationship. Right. And while Sammy was known to adopt some of the more traditionally masculine attributes of clothing, her short bob was not out of the ordinary no. for the time. You can look at some of these photos and you can go, okay, not only is Sammy really stylish, mm -hmm. but she does look a little butch. You know, she's yeah. attractive. She's at one point, she's wearing kind of like a, a men's jacket with like a big tie and big pants. Yeah. And it's wonderfully stylish, but it's not her everyday wardrobe. So is this something that somebody saw and they're like, oh, let's add this lesbian angle to the story because there were two mattresses that will come up later, right? Right. Yeah, it could be. Or, you know, was this one image that was taken of them as a couple? Because that particular photo, I mean, you know, she kind of has... And sort of tucked in under her arm. I yes. don't know. It's it's a lot of conjecture for sure. But going back to looking at motive and perhaps were they harboring a secret that Ruth was threatening to reveal? 
could make sense. Or maybe, you know, it, it wasn't secret. There wasn't anything going on, but she was going to accuse them of it anyway. And at that time ah. in history, that could have cost them their jobs and ostracized them from the community easily. Well, there's another version of the story where Ruth arms herself with both a gun and a knife because... That just makes so much sense and really easy to manage, right? Just as many weapons as you can possibly hold. (laughs) Just load on up. Anyway, she allegedly appears at the bungalow in the middle of the night while Sammy and Anne were asleep. And this is congruent with the Phoenix Police Department's asserting and maintaining the theory that both young women had been shot while they were in bed. Supporting this theory is the fact that both mattresses were missing from their home and only one of the mattresses was ever found. Interestingly enough, with no blood stains. So for our forensic files, friends out there, what does that tell you? Yeah, why? So the mattress, there's only one mattress found. Why did you do that? Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. So many theories, many ideas about what led to an argument that night. There are theories that allege that Ruth, being jealous that the other women were having sexual relationships with Happy Jack, believed that she was being edged out of the benefits of involvement with him, with a rich and generous, albeit married man. I could see that, you know, again, it comes back to money. We know so many of these violent acts are about money. But there's another theory that alleges Sammy and Anne being furious with Ruth introducing Happy Jack to yet another woman who is known to have syphilis. (laughs) So it's like you have all these diseases, all these people. (laughs) So how would they even know this? And remember, they worked in a medical clinic, right? So because someone possibly accessed the woman's medical file, then leading Sammy to make the point that the woman's sexual history and medical diagnosis were confidential. So you're seeing this argument coming up and then maybe fingers being pointed here. Also remember that the discovery of the uses of antibiotics, particularly penicillin, had only occurred a few years earlier and sexually transmitted diseases, particularly syphilis, had both immediate and hardcore inevitable symptoms, including deformity, and death if left untreated. So we have potentially, if this other woman is being introduced, and if maybe they're all having relations with this same group, that I could see why they would be pissed. But it's so interesting to think that they worked in this clinic and maybe that's how they were getting this information. Yeah, I mean, syphilis up until the time that antibiotics were brought on the scene, it was a done deal. You talk about sort of having existentialist view of life. It's like, well, okay, I'm going to have these the worst of these symptoms. Then I'm going to get to a place where I can't infect anybody, which is great. Mm-hmm. But then I'll start getting lesions all over my body and I may lose my nose and eventually I'm going to yeah. have dementia symptoms. So yep. Good times. Yeah. Good times. But regardless of how all this went down, Sammy and Anne were murdered that night, brutally murdered. And was it actually Ruth or was it in conjunction with another perpetrator? I mean, both of them died that night with Ruth allegedly dismembering Sammy's body and putting her head, torso and legs in a shipping trunk. And then Ruth allegedly put the upper section of Sammy's legs in another box, then stuffing Anne's remains into yet another truck. I, I mean, it's that's a lot of luggage. That's a lot for of a, leaky luggage. For a five-foot-tall woman. It's a very good point. So, But why is this particular bit so controversial? Because the police and the coroner reports indicated that the bodies were dismembered by a professional, not a nursing professional, but a skilled surgeon. Where have we heard this before? <laughs> it was George Hodel. <laughs> <laughs> it's George Hodel. He went back in time. Oh, boy. 
Right. I mean, it's the same kind of precision that requires a background in surgery or maybe butchering. But the the accounts that I read in the research I did were talking that it was really surgical dismemberment. But huh. then again, you know, if somebody comes from a rural background and they know how to butcher an animal, they, they might have been proficient at that. But it, apparently by the time the next chapter of events happens, it's pretty gross. So... Somehow, Winnie Ruth is able to get herself on a train from Phoenix to Los Angeles. She alerts, I guess, by telegram her brother that she's coming. Her brother, Burton McKennell, agreed to pick her up at the train station. He was a student at USC at the time. And it's pretty likely he had no clue about what was going on with the crime. But on observing the trunks... And the state that they were in, as well as seeing his sister's odd behavior when she was being questioned, something must have clicked in him and he realized that he needed to get out of the situation. And as we shared earlier, he dropped Ruth off in a downtown Los Angeles area with a reported amount of $5. In today's conversion, that would have been about $111, which okay. sounds like I'm going to, you know, like a college kid, I'm going to give you all the money. Yeah, I can get my hands on and you got to go. I'm going to nope out of this. Right. So what had happened on the train ride over before Ruth even gets into the station is that the porters had noticed that the luggage was leaking. Going back to our earlier statement, this wasn't an unusual occurrence, but it was illegal. You couldn't smuggle deer meat or other meat across state lines mm -hmm. for a number of reasons, including health reasons. Yeah. But she was pulled aside so that they could inspect the luggage. She makes a story very nervously about not having the key and then walks away from them with her mm -hmm. brother in tow. Her brother's following her like, what's going on? What's going on? So he gets in, nopes out of the situation. The cops are back in now with the railway employees and they pick the locks, opening the suitcases to a really horrific site. Handwritten letters, hastily collected belongings, all wrapped up in bloodied clothes and at the bottom, the horribly dismembered bodies of and Sammy. Immediately, the search for Winnie Ruth begins. Yeah. And I believe they even found, was it a hat box in like the women's restroom that had the rest of Sammy's body parts in there that was not in the original trunk. Yeah. So she, you know, had left that behind as well. It's just horrific. So this all took place in Central Station, which is not Union Station. You, if you do some online searches about this case, you will see photos of Union Station, which is where you and I took some of our promo photographs, but Central Station was the Southern Pacific Railroad's main passenger terminal in Los Angeles before Union Station was even built in 1939. So remember, we're talking 1931 here. And it was formerly on Central Avenue at Fifth Street in eastern downtown Los Angeles. And Central Station was the primary hub for the Southern Pacific passenger operations in Southern California. And it was served by the passenger train lines Sunset Limited, Coast Daylight, and Golden State. Don't those sounds so glamorous. And the station replaced the company's previous Los Angeles terminal, which was called Arcade Depot, and was often referred to by the name of that older facility. So sometimes you still hear it referred to as that. And again, probably what, third time coming back around to Elizabeth Short, this isn't that far from where the Greyhound bus station was, where Elizabeth Short had stored her luggage before she disappeared and where they found it, you know, a few days after 
her body had been found. That's fascinating. Again, we have these unfolding scenes that are shrouded in time and mystery. So the exact movements of Ruth immediately after her brother's departure are not known. But somehow, either by hitchhiking, by public transportation, or even just walking, she ended up in a suburb of Los Angeles called Altadena. It's a beautiful little community north of Pasadena, and it's tucked right up into the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains. There's also evidence that she made her way back to the Altadena Sanitarium named La Vina, where she had once stayed when she was sick. Ruth later asserted that she was staying in one of the patient rooms by herself with nobody bothering her. So she might have been so familiar with that she just Mm -hmm. slipped in and, you know, got a hospital gown and was able to fly under the radar for a while. Yeah, I lived in Altadena for a very long time in my childhood, and this was a beautiful area. It still is nestled up against the San Gabriel Mountains, like you said. But back then, La Vina Sanatorium, it actually had opened in 1911 and for more than six decades offered care and sometimes a cure for over 50,000 tuberculosis patients. Wow. And it was located at the north end of Lincoln Avenue and quite the oasis. They had horses, chickens, turkeys, cattle, orange and grapefruit trees, vineyards, and its own post office. And it, it was this little retreat where people suffering from this disease could go be, again, away from the masses and income from selling the grapes, eggs, and milk helped the expenses to feed the patients. And the idea was just to have a nice retreat for these people to perhaps do their, what what kind of therapy was it? Not laying down therapy. Rest therapy. (laughs) Rest therapy. (laughs) So yeah, she was clearly familiar with it and she just scooted on over there to hide out for a bit, sounds like. There's another report that she walked into a store on Broadway Avenue and sequestered herself kind of like a stowaway in order to spend the night inside. And the Mm -hmm. report said that during her hiding in the store, she wrote a confession letter, but then she was so overcome with anxiety that she decided to flush it down the toilet. And the letter was allegedly recovered, and that comes up later on. But what does seem to be happening is a real decompensation in Ruth. She's At this point, she's got no place to go. She's got no one to turn to now that her brother has completely removed himself from the situation. And while all this is happening in L.A., there's a real circus atmosphere that is happening back in Phoenix at the crime scene because the landlord, remember, Happy Jack owned the building. Right. But he had a landlord or manager that was running it. That landlord was reeling in cash by collecting 10 cents from anyone who wanted to come and see the brutal crime Uh. scene. Of course, this completely polluted the crime scene, confusing and complicating any hope of collection of evidence that would solidify what actually happened at that location. But let's get back to Ruth. She is out of resources. She's disheveled. She's bruised, somewhat battered, and now with a gangrenous gunshot wound in her hand. It's really serious. So she just picks herself up and she surrenders to police at the Alvarez and Moore Funeral Chapel in Los Angeles on October 23rd. And what's interesting about that location is that that was one of the places she had gone to hide out. So maybe she was being kicked out of places because she was looking worse and worse, Mm -hmm. but she just went into a funeral home and then saw a newspaper where there was a quote from her husband begging for her to surrender. That apparently was the turning point for her turning herself into the police. Wow. Well, on January 19th, 1932, the trial begins at the Maricopa County Courthouse in downtown Phoenix. Winnie Ruth had been accused and charged with the murder after her extradition back to Phoenix, Arizona. And the judge in charge of this case was Howard C. Speakman. The media 
of course, it's already spun up, but they have gone on to give her a bunch of different nicknames. They called her the Trunk Murderess. I've also seen her referred to as the Lizzie Borden of Phoenix, as well as the Blonde Butcher. Wow. Yeah. Well, they also briefly called her the Tiger Lady, but it yeah. didn't stick. Remember the other one we did back in the day? It was the case with it was. It was the tig- the Tigress or the Tiger Lady because she used a claw hammer to kill her boyfriend. Clara Ruth. Clara yeah. Ruth, the Tigress. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I read that and I was like, are they getting these Ruths mixed up? Like, what is happening? Could be, <laughs> but... yeah. Maybe they were just running out of things to call people. I don't know. With entertainment being at an available minimum those days, a crime like this was sure to fill the papers and sell copies. Of course, the result was that the press had begun and continued a relentless pursuit of the story, including printing any and every iteration or contradiction that emerged. Even as she faded into an aesthetic oblivion for the surgery necessary to address her now really, really infected hand. I mean, she's been on the run with this gunshot wound, with the bullet still in her hand, I believe. The press was taking notes on everything that Ruth said. And while two bodies were found, Ruth only faced a trial for Anne Leroy's murder. And for some reason, the dismemberment of Sammy's body was not a topic of discussion during her trial. It's very interesting. There's a dramatic sort of crime of the century story to be told here about how the prosecution milked any and every supposition about what happened that night in the bungalow. And they finally settled on a narrative where Ruth and Anne exploded into an argument over a supposed sexual encounter that Anne had had with Halloran. And that particular narrative implied that Ruth stabbed and then shot Sammy after a brief confrontation. Winnie Ruth had been able to construct a team of lawyers due to the very charitable donations of people like William Randolph Hearst, which is very interesting that this newspaper guy is like just comes out of nowhere. He's got millions. I mean, he's got lots of money to burn. And I would, but I don't know what his motivation was. Maybe it's like, well, this is going to sell a lot of papers. So maybe it's worth keeping it in the news for a while. Not really sure. Or like promising incentive for some exclusive interviews. Oh, yeah, probably. I mean, that makes sense because eventually I think this was getting so glorified and out of control that the judge put what we would now call it a gag order, but he was like telling people to shut up and stop talking about it. But as any good defense team would do, Winnie Ruth's attorneys countered with the very legitimate concern that the crime scene had been completely polluted by the throngs of looky that were paying 10 cents to see where the trunk murderess had completed her heinous crimes. So how was it even possible to know what happened with no clear and undisturbed evidence at the scene of the crime? Yeah, sounds very murky to me at this point. Winnie Ruth's Methodist minister father and pious mother were present throughout the trial for her defense. Her father told newspapers that he was fervently praying for his daughter's soul and that his daughter could not have been responsible. Note, keyword responsible for her own actions based on the incidents that had taken place. The very religious retired minister was referring to an older man that Ruth had had an affair with when she was 16. Ruth's mother, in her attempt to be helpful, stridently asserted that insanity ran in Ruth's family. So there's that. Your mother comes forth to uh, start touting the mental illness of the family. Which is very interesting because I don't know... You know, there was such a, you know, really such a prohibition and such a stigma of any kind of issue about mental health, mental illness, insanity. I don't know if that's a thing unless that was what the goal was, was to go for the insanity defense. Because it seems like that's where 
this is heading. Sure. Like we said earlier, you know, a salacious crime like this was seen as comparable to the title of crime this century. It has all the necessary ingredients, right? We've got changing Mm -hmm. confessions. We've got a brutal murder, unreliable evidence, and of course, the claim now of insanity. But the prosecution must also squarely implicate Jack Halloran because clearly they cannot leave him out of this picture. He was too much involved in the women's lives to not have something to do with it as far as they were concerned. He must have been involved because of his liaisons with the women and the implication that Ruth could not have done this alone, right? which seems to hold a lot of weight. It really does. Halloran was then indicted by the grand jury in the murders. Yes. So Ruth actually testified against Halloran and in doing so created a courtroom spectacle. Some reports have Ruth claiming that she killed in self-defense and that Halloran was the one who directed her on how to clean up the crime scene. Ironically, however, her testimony appeared to support the exoneration of Halloran as she claimed she killed in self-defense. The judge then determined that no crime had been committed by Halloran. Very interesting to me, because I I just can't see how he wasn't involved. I mean, it wasn't, maybe it was a relief that he didn't get indicted, but he didn't have a happy ending. All this publicity called him to fall very far out of favor with his lofty connections back in Arizona. He's reported to have died in Tucson just a few years later, I think in 1939. So it didn't work out well for him, although we're at this point, we're not going to really know. It was stated, though, that one of his best friends was a very powerful doctor. So if there was a doctor that he could call in the middle of the night, hey, you got to help me take care of this, because neither him or Winnie Ruth were going to be skilled enough to cut up two bodies the way they did. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. And and Winnie, you know, when she implicated him, basically she said she called him for help, which I could totally understand. Like, who else does she rely on that she's, yeah. you know, is there in Phoenix with her? And he has her cleaning up the blood as he's sort of like, I'll take care of this. And then tells her like, I'll go bury these bodies in the desert for you. She goes home, cleans up, comes back. The trunks are still there. And then he's like, no, change of plans. I'm going to send you on a train to LA and someone will be there to meet you to help you out. And so, I I mean, I could see that happening. I could see that happening. I got to get you the fuck out of here. So I'm going to tell you this story that someone's going to help you out and you'll probably just get caught, which is what happened. I mean, it, it seems like, I don't know, maybe that was the plan for her to get caught because if you're already pretty wealthy, why not? not give her 500 bucks, which would have gone a long way. And she could have gotten there, dropped off the trunk somewhere and disappeared into the night. It's it's very, very confusing and challenging to figure out like these multiple motivations and everything that's just, you know, so opaque now looking back through time. Yeah. But I think she would have, since she went ahead and implicated him, I think she would have implicated like if he had a friend come over and helped too. But I I do remember the story about the doctor friend because supposedly he was going to call him up to help Ruth with her gunshot wound, but that never happened. Although Ruth was found guilty of first-degree murder, she was able to convince the warden that she deserved a hearing regarding her mental competence. The warden overturned Ruth's death sentence by claiming that she seemed to be insane. And he's a professional. Well, it's very interesting that a warden, I mean, I guess... You know, in an incarceration setting, a warden or a professional that's in charge of that could say, no, there's something wrong with this inmate. We need to have them evaluated. Sure. But this is the next level of that. Like, no, I'm going to overturn what the judge has said. I guess they had that power. I guess they did. Judge Speakman had ordered Ruth to die by hanging, and she was sent to this prison in Florence to await her execution. But this is where... 
the warden stepped in, overturned that decision because just days before her execution, she was called back to the courtroom for an insanity hearing. Successfully for her, in 1933, she was found to be insane. And with this change in status, she was then moved from prison to the Arizona State Mental Hospital for a 38-year stay. 38 years. Okay. Wow. Inside the hospital, she became very popular. She was supposed to be very approachable, very kind. She was doing hair for the other female inmates, and she befriended guards as well, which I can't help but wonder if that likely contributed to her ability to escape the hospital on a number of occasions. And when I say a number, we're talking (laughs) multiple times for long periods of time. Oh, yes. She expertly managed to escape from the hospital seven times, with the term of the final escape lasting for over six years. Wow. I mean, that's pretty impressive. And we see this with a lot of the female murders as we cover, where they are just like the most perfect inmate and very supportive and people can't say enough about them. But we can only imagine the horror of the family that took her in during her last escape. After fleeing to Northern California, Ruth assumed the name Marion Lane and worked as a nanny for a wealthy family. Following her discovery after an ongoing police investigation, Ruth was transported back to the Phoenix Asylum in 1969, where she again demanded a sanity hearing that her case be reviewed by the state parole board. So she's like, I'm crazy. And I demand to be evaluated and proven as such. (laughs) Which is so weird. It's just so mind boggling because that's so different from the parameters of of how we look at it today. And it's it's fascinating to me. Obviously, she wasn't crazy. And she was like, but I want to stay in the hospital, not prison. Or don't hate me. Yeah. You know, despite or, or you know what, maybe this is more congruent with Ruth's ability to present, to speak well, to understand the process is really different from the way we do it now. Defense on her case attempted to use incompetency as well, which is, you know, kind of completely in contrast to her quotes, her speaking, her sharing and interviews that were happening at the same time, because she She was always organized, always put together. Now, her story might have changed a lot, but she wasn't coming across as mentally ill or insane. And they don't even say that, like, well, you were insane at the time that the event happened and now you're okay. Because if somebody like today, if you got an NGI, if you were somehow able to get not guilty by reason of insanity, it's still because, well, you were insane at the time that it happened, but you could still be fully functioning right now. Ruth's case was actually reopened in October 1969, with the result being a denial of parole. She was then granted a second parole in 1971. So got pushed Mm -hmm. off for a couple of years, comes back, gets parole. And during this hearing, Governor Jack Williams signed her pardon. And following her release, she was directed by the court to never speak about her story or the hearing ever again. I guess that, like I was saying before, it was an early form of a gag order. The judge stipulated that the hearings be hushed as not to alarm the community. Mm -hmm. And when one of her attorneys went to the papers and was blaring, he was fired and shut up immediately. Wow. If I mean, he should have been put in contempt of court for basically violating a gag order. Yeah. Because now he sort of undid why they did that in the first place. Here, they're going to let this murderess out and they don't want to alarm everyone. And he blabbed what a good job he did getting her out of out of her situation. So, yeah. Who, but who even knows if a, if a gag order in the way we understand it today even existed totally. legally then? Yeah. Well, she successfully returned to Northern California and again assumed the identity that worked for her before, Marion Lane. Sounds like a nice place to live. Mm-hmm. 
After the death of the matriarch she previously worked for, it's reported that she inherited some money on which she was able to live a modest life. Winnie Ruth Judd died in 1998, exactly 67 years to the day after she turned herself over to the police. Wow. A letter was discovered in 2002, allegedly written by Ruth to one of her attorneys in 1933. In the letter written on death row, Ruth allegedly described killing Anne in the middle of the night while Anne was sleeping. Ruth then killed Sammy in a confrontation and... Essentially, she felt like she had to remove her as a witness. Winnie Ruth Judd died in her sleep on October 23rd, 1998, at the age of 93. The bungalow in Phoenix, Arizona still exists, and attorney Robert Warnicke was reported to have purchased it with the plan of restoring it to its original state. So you can still drive by it if you live in the Phoenix area. There have been... Many authors who have been fascinated with Winnie Ruth's life, I think that they've all done a great job of diving in. Again, they may be making. Again, though, they may be making some assertions that really don't have a lot of proof. Although they've really dug deep and found photographs and talked to family members and gotten letters, but still, even as we're doing today, there's a lot of assumption that's going on. But um, without going through all of the authors that are listed, there's been some interesting. There are two sets of authors that came out with the major books, and they have even updated over a period of 20 years. They when they've got more information from a release of records, they've updated them. So Dwight Dobkins and Robert J. Hendricks have both had double versions of the books. And there's another one, Jana Bombersbach. And she wrote the first version back in 1992, and she's released one later. But like I was saying earlier, there's another interesting development because there's a book entitled Sammy and Sonny, the story of Hedvig Samuelson murdered by Winnie Ruth Judd and the story of Sonny Worrell's search for Sammy. And it focuses on the victims. And she is a descendant of Sammy's. She tells the story of Sammy Samuelson. And she wanted to do this in an attempt to create a legacy of Sammy as someone who was more than just the victim of this hugely sensationalized crime. She was an adventurer, a school teacher, a mentor to her students. And her story was only fractionally told as a side character in this drama for decades. So 70 years after her death, her niece corrected the record in the goal of showing Sammy's dignity. And I just, I love this actually. So absolutely. Um, I mean, especially nobody was ever charged for Sammy's death. Yeah. I mean, how awful is that? Good for her. That's wonderful. Yeah. It just also seems like not only was that completely unfair, but it just sounds like, you know, maybe Cappy Jack burned his last bit of money and getting the defense that he got. Mm-hmm. And as a result, what he did was pay off the judge or pay off the system or have enough of a good defense for it where, yes, he got charged, but the charge was revoked. And as a result, we don't know who was responsible for the death of this yeah. other one, because clearly there's only a couple of people in the room and somebody did it. Right. No, I would I would love to know more about the forensic evidence. You know, Ruth's gunshot wound, like, was that accidental and she got shot? Did she do it on purpose afterwards to make That's it seem like... That's one of the theories, like, too. Yeah. You know, she was a victim in all of this. Gosh, there's just, you know... I think we could make up a million wild stories about what happened that night. Her killing one of them in their sleep and that mattress being gotten rid of makes a lot of sense to me. And then Sammy gets up and, you know, maybe they thought there was evidence on the other one, too, and got rid of that as well. And there didn't turn out to be any, but that makes a lot of sense to me. I just wondered what the beef was about. So... 
Yeah, great story. There's if you put Winnie Ruth Judd's name into Amazon, not only will it list all of the books that have been written about this crime, but also the various iterations that have come up on true crime shows, including sure. Snapped or Investigation Discovery. I have not seen all of those. I do have to give some a little bit of begrudging props to the first YouTube video that comes up. <laughs> this guy spends an hour and a half giving a very deep dive into the history of this, at least from that particular author that he's using from her perspective. But there's also some really great photographs of everybody yeah, that are absolutely. really cool to see. Yes. So yes. I advise people to watch it on one and a half speed because it's a little bit slow. <laughs> we'll, we'll post some photos, of course, on our social media to go yeah. along with this. So, well, there is your vintage episode for February. A lot of fun, as always, with our historical deep dives. Join us on Discord. Yeah, join us on Discord by upgrading to our $8 or $10 tier on Patreon. We are still having a blast and getting really good recommendations from people over there and just little things. Saying hello in the morning and posting pictures of sunrises where everyone is in the world <laughs> some days. It's kind of cool. So yeah, I know we've talked really about nice. it a lot, but it's it's new to us and it's just great to connect with you guys in a different way. All right, Dr. Scott, I think that's it. This is great. Thank you so much for your time. Go and have a wonderful afternoon. And we're going to see all of you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye-bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA not so confidential. Bye folks. 